right, Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. We're going to continue looking at Zelophehad's daughters. I, uh, I learned this, Zelophehad, <laughs> and, and I realize as I read through this, you know, you get something in your head, you think that's what it is. I realize that's not the way it's pronounced. It's, it's pronounced Zelophehad. Well, again, if you're Hebrew, you probably pronounce it a little bit different, but I, I had inadvertently taken a syllable out of there, and so it's, I'm working hard to try to put it back in. So the title of this is Zelophehad, the Hidden Potency of a Name, Numbers 27, 1 through 11. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Mature, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of a father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. Let's see. Move this. Lost my place here. Verse 7. Okay. Uh, you shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. So God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give his descendants the land that he was walking. And this was uh, 400 and something years before the Israelites were actually delivered from the promised land. Abraham believed God, and he kept on walking. Now, Abraham died, but in time, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and now, finally, they stood ready to enter in. Not the first time, but this is the second time. You see, God's promise was available, and I don't preach, really, for the previous generation, but the previous generation didn't believe God. The promise is still available for the next generation, but the next generation would have to believe God. Faith is what activates the promises of God in your life. Faith opens the door for the power of God's promises to be realized in your life. We are part of the children of God as well. And the promises of God are yes, not just to the generation that heard them, but to the generation that are hearing them because God is not finite, God is eternal, and when God speaks, his word is true throughout all eternity, and what he spoke to those generations is also available to us. How do we receive them? By faith, right? But like Bobby says, sometimes faith uh, uh, doesn't see the manifestation of the promise right away. Sometimes you've got to fight, you got to fight, you got to walk, and you got to walk until you see the manifestation of the promise. Abraham walked for 25 years before he saw one of his promises come to pass, and 400 and some years later, uh, the Israelites were receiving another of God's promises that he had made to Abraham that Abraham was believing God for as well.
So this is the context of the text we're studying today. As they get to the promised land for the second time, they prepare to distribute the land through the taking of a census. So the first uh, point we want to look at tonight is the lineage of Zelophehad. Numbers 36, 1 through 2. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Mature, the son of Manasseh, the families of the sons of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance, uh, the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. So we see here that Zelophehad is from the tribe of Manasseh. The tribes of Israel were the 12 sons of Israel, whom we probably know best as Jacob. While Manasseh is not Jacob's direct son, it is one of his grandsons born to his own son, Joseph. So what happened was Levi didn't receive an inheritance of land. Levi was brought to the Lord, and he was uh, their inheritance was the Lord himself. But Joseph, since he was taken away from Jacob, uh, Joseph took his two grandsons who were now going to grow up with him as being part of his family. So that's why you have Ephraim and Manasseh who were born to Joseph in Egypt, now part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So anyway, Manasseh is one of his grandsons, but he's also one of the 12 tribes. In Genesis 30, 22 through 24, God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Genesis 41, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenoth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. I'm just giving you proof text for what I just told you. Genesis 48 and 5, And now your two sons, Jacob says, who were born to you, speaking to Joseph, in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So that's the lineage of Zelophehad. Now let's look at the life of Zelophehad. Exodus 1, 5 through 14. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Who is them? Israelites. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. The context is even more. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. What I want you to see in this text is that Zelophehad was born in Egypt during the time that they were oppressed by the Egyptians and forced into slavery. The name Zelophehad actually means in the shadow of the fear, and it's most likely a reflection of the situation the Israelites found themselves in when they were being oppressed by Pharaoh and the taskmasters of Egypt. That'll create a lot of fear in a people when you know that every day that you wake up, you're a slave, you're in oppression, and you don't know what they're going to do, right? 
So Exodus 14, 30 through, uh, fortunately, Zelophehad was also part of the generation that saw the mighty acts of God when Moses went down to Egypt and delivered, helped deliver the Israelites, and they were delivered from slavery through Moses' interaction at the uh, uh, commission of God and through the power of God. Exodus 14, 30 through 31, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. As I said before, unfortunately, he was also part of the generation that camped on the brink of the promised land, but as part of that generation, when they heard the reports of the spies that went into the promised land, instead of believing the reports of the two that were talking about what they could do with God on their side in faith, there were ten that gave a bad report, but it was a report of unbelief, and guess which one the people chose to believe? It's, it's amazing. I've been in church a long time. Yeah, some of you are going, yeah, me too. It's amazing how people can gravitate toward the bad report. You can have two sides. You can have some people giving a good report on one side, some people giving a good, bad report on the other side, and it's amazing how often, I can't tell you percentage, but I, wouldn't, I would probably say it's probably the same. Uh, two out of 12 will probably favor the good report, and 10 out of 12 will favor the bad report. They'll always believe the bad instead of the good. Why is that? Huh? Because we're in the flesh, and because more often than not, the bad report matches up with what we see. It doesn't match up with what God says, because oftentimes what God says is contrary to what we see. And you have to believe God in order to see something different. But since we're used to seeing what we see, we, we're taught to uh, what our senses tells us is true. We're taught that. And so therefore, if it, if it matches up with what we're saying, what we're hearing, and you add on top of that that there's an enemy who, I believe, talks louder than God. Because God's not fighting to be heard. He's God. But the enemy is fighting to be heard. That's why the Bible says he comes as a roaring lion. But how did, I, how did Elijah hear the Lord? Like a still, small voice. So in order to hear the voice of God, you've got to calm yourself down, but it's nothing to hear the voice of the enemy because he's screaming and shouting all the time. In fact, the Bible says Abraham wavered not through Unbelief. I tell you how I look at that. The way I look at that, I feel like the Lord opened my eyes to see it a little bit differently, is that he was a man of faith, but he was walking through a time in his life, through a territory, if you will, full of unbelief. And all he kept hearing, because let's just say he was walking through the tribe of the unbelievites. What do the unbelievites speak? Unbelief. So what was he hearing? Unbelief. Everywhere he walked, unbelief. And it just happened that at this time, at this particular season, as he walked through this time, he was hearing unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. But the Bible says he wavered not through unbelief. Sometimes we read it as he wavered not by not having any unbelief. I don't believe that's what it means. I believe it means he wavered not 
through this land, this season, this time where all he heard was unbelief. I like what Kenneth Hagin says. You can have unbelief in your head but faith in your heart. You can keep walking even when, when your mind is playing tricks with you. When you keep hearing, it ain't going to happen. It's not. You can keep walking and believing God through the middle of it, and God honors that because it's, it's like somebody else said. Uh, uh, courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing in the presence of fear. And it's the same with faith. Faith is not the absence of doubt or the absence of a negative report. It's believing God in spite of it. Well, anyway, he was part of that generation that camped out on the brink of the promised land, but as part of that generation, he refused to enter in because of their unbelief. Instead of walking in the promises of God, they found themselves, want they didn't go back to Egypt, but they didn't get into the promised land either. And I believe that's where, for the longest time as a church, that's where we've camped. We're not necessarily going back to Egypt, but we haven't walked in the fullness of all that God has for us. Because we've just been waiting for God to rescue us out of this world instead of recognizing that God put us in this world in order to do something in this world. We've just been hiding out the churches, you know, with a lamp over, with a basket over our head, this roof, you know, hoping that Jesus will come rescue us. And that's not what God wants for his pride. My personal opinion. That's the way I read it. Okay? So anyway, they just walked in that wilderness uh, for four years, and maybe the next generation would have the opportunity to go in. Because of their unbelief, instead of walking in the promises of God, they found themselves wandering and dying in the desert. Now, in Numbers 14, 26 through 35, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and, um, and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your fatherless faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Now, if you were an enterprising person, it would be a good time to go online and get a degree in being a funeral director because you're about to have a lot of business. <laughs> and they got lots of money because they spoil the Egyptians coming up. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. All right. So anyway, third point we want to look at. Now we want to look at the daughters of Zelophehad. Okay? So Numbers 27, 1 through 3, then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh. And they said, Our fathers died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord, but he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. So Zelophehad, in the wilderness, not before, in the wilderness, he had five daughters. 
and they would have most likely been born after this terrible calamity that had befallen the Israelites because of their sin of unbelief. Why do I say that? Now, I'm, I'm making a supposition, but I think it's pretty valid because um, our text is approximately 40 years later after this incident. The girls are coming forward to claim an inheritance because they have no brothers. Also, somewhere down the road, they're going to be told that when they marry, they have to marry, and I'll, I'll give you that text here in a minute, somebody in the same clan. So more than likely... They're not over 40 years old, okay? Because um, they, that's just not something in that culture um, that took place. Uh, women, if they're going to be married, they got married young, 15 to 20, maybe 25 years old, okay? So they're not, they're not, they're not married yet. They're not, um, um, you know, going to be widows for their life. The, the promises, in fact, it says later on that they did get married. So therefore, my conclusion is they were born in the wilderness. Now, that's important for where we're going, okay? Numbers 36.3, I told you I'd give you a text for that. Now, they said to them, if they married to any of the sons of the other tribes, then their inheritance would be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and so it will be taken from their lot of our inheritance. Now, I didn't put it in there, but I think there's another text that said they did what they were told, and they married within the tribe, okay? So, thus, they were unmarried, and as I said before, for someone older than 40 to be unmarried and expect to be married, which they did eventually do, would not have been feasible in this culture. So, to restate, I believe these girls were all born during the wilderness wanderings. I also believe their names, personal belief, reflect something of what was happening in their parents' faith during the time of their wanderings. Remember what Bobby said here? He says, sometimes you, you know, faith is not, you're not always here. You're not always here, right? You, you, you don't walk by feelings. You walk by faith. Sometimes I feel stronger in faith, and sometimes I don't. But faith is not evidenced by what you feel. It's evidenced by whether you keep walking or not, by what you do. Do I still do the right thing even when I don't feel like it, even when I don't feel strong, even when I don't feel like it's going to take anything's going to happen, even when I've done it over and over and over and never seen anything come of it, do I, am I still going to keep doing what God says to do with the belief that God is faithful, let God be true, and every man a liar, and eventually I will see the manifestation of God's promise in my life. That's what faith does. Unfortunately, and I don't think it's new to us as a culture, but unfortunately, we, we are, uh, this is probably more new than any other cultures. We're very impatient as a people. We're used to getting everything now, right? I, I uh, um, with my wife's uh, insurance, um, they have now, uh, I don't have to go to the hospital, to the emergency room, because if you don't have something really serious, serious in the emergency room, they're going to keep putting you back, putting you back, putting you back, putting you back. And, uh, you know, you might be there four, five, six, eight hours if the emergency room is full because they do, uh, what do they call that, triaging, you know, and they take the most uh, difficult and most uh, uh, critical cases first. And, and wherever you fall on that, it don't matter. If somebody comes in more critical, they're going to move them ahead of you because you're just not as critical at the time. All right, then, then I, with my doctor, I would go with my doctor, 
and then uh, while I was there, um, a lot of times uh, he was pretty busy, and so if you wanted to get an appointment, unless it was really, really, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, critical, they would move you back, and they'd move you, and you couldn't get in for two weeks or whatever the case may be. So now they have this urgency clinic, and, you know, with these urgency clinics, what you do is you, uh, you get in there and you call them, and you can get in like in five minutes, right? And I don't know about you, but there's also this other thing you can do now, which is called online. You can talk to a doctor online. You just call the number. You put in your information. They call you back, and there you are talking to your doctor. You don't even have to get out of your house, Right? I mean, it's like, it's like, man, I, 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 want, I want it, and I want it now, and whatever is required for me to do it now, that's what I want. I've told you before how we do things as far as uh, we want food, and we want it now. You know, before in Abraham's time, they used to, uh, they had three people showed up, and they were going to make him a meal, so he goes to Sarah, and he says, kill a lamb, and get it ready fast. You ever had to skin a deer? Now, even if you can do it pretty fast, it's going to take you 20, 30 minutes to skin a deer. And then you got to, you know, apparently they had one already dressed, but then you got to put it on a spit, right? Not, not that kind of spit. I'm talking about a roasting spit, you know. It's not going to cook in five minutes. You're not going to pull it out of the refrigerator, which they didn't have every time, put it in a microwave and get it within 20 minutes. It's not going to happen. But today, you know, you're hungry, and, and, I, and my wife says, it won't be ready for an hour and a half. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and make me something else. I want, I'm hungry, and I want it now, right? Now, don't bother my wife. If it bothered my wife, I wouldn't do that, you know. Well, I probably would anyway. I just bother my wife. But I'm just saying, is I want it, I want it. I'm, I, you get what you call hangry. You know what I mean? You're hungry, and you're angry because you're hungry, right? I want it, and I want it now, right? You go to a drive-thru, and if you see 10 cars in line, you're going to go to another drive-thru. Because I really want McDonald's. Not that anybody here would want McDonald's, but uh, actually, let's use one I do like. I I really want Chick-fil-A, but I go by Chick-fil-A, and they've always got cars all the way across the street to the mall. Well, I guess I'm not eating Chick-fil-A today. I'm going to eat something else. You end up eating eating something you don't like, not because... Not because you can't, you just, just because you don't want to wait, right? So, but sometimes with faith, you have to wait. God is not on our timetable. And it doesn't mean he's not faithful. He's just not on our timetable. And you've got to believe God through the, 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 the time that's passing. And like I said before, sometimes you feel good about it. Sometimes you don't feel good about it, but you got to keep believing God anyway. You got to keep walking. You got to keep going. You got to keep uh, pressing forth. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Right. So it's what do you do? It's not the one that says. It's what what do you do with what you say? It's not the one who says he has faith. It's the one that does something with his faith. And what do you do when you don't feel right? I don't feel good. I'm not going to church. Why? I don't feel like going to church. Well, I can promise you, the more you stay out of church, the more you're not going to feel like going to church. So you're not building your faith by staying home, right? So what do I do when I don't feel like going to church? You go to church. What do I do if I have my quiet time? You know, I have my quiet time in the morning. And uh, what do I do if, um, you know, I don't feel like getting up that morning? What do you do when you got to go to work and you don't feel like getting up? 
you get up anyway, right? But see, that's important because I get a paycheck, and if I don't go to work, I don't get a paycheck. But having a quiet time with the Lord, eh, that's not as important. And I would beg to disagree because the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. So it's just a matter of perspective. Faith sees things differently. So whether you feel like it or not, you get up. Now, there might be a time when you get sick and you, you can't get up, whatever the case may be, but the reality is you do what you know to do even when you don't feel like doing it, right? That's what faith does. Well, I don't feel like planting a crop. I feel like eating my seed. Well, go ahead and eat your seed, but next year you won't have a crop. So whether you feel like it or not, what do you do? You plant your seed because you know what you do today is you're going to have to deal with the consequences tomorrow. So I walk by faith today when it's hard today knowing that I'll reap something tomorrow. But if I quit planting seed today, if I quit walking by faith today, if I quit doing what I'm supposed to do today, then I'll worry about tomorrow tomorrow, but the reality is you're tomorrow, you're not going to like it. Because you didn't walk by faith today. Anyway, let's get back. So, to restate, I believe these girls were all born during the wilderness wanderings, and I also believe their names reflect something of what was happening in their parents' faith during the time of their wanderings. Let's, ex let's examine first where, where these girls ended up. According to the Talmud, and that's the Jewish uh, uh, records of, of some of the teachers and what they said, Zelophehad's daughters were wise, astute interpreters, and very pious. They were wise because they spoke in the precise moment when the decision was issued. They were interpreters because they, in essence, said, if our father had a son, we would not have spoken because he would have the inheritance. They were pious because they did not want to marry men who were not worthy. So let's imagine the scene. The Israelite camp is formed of tribes, each of whom has a determined place with a tabernacle in the middle, and in the center stand the main authority figures, all of the men, Moses, the priest Eliezer, and the chieftains, imposing as the structure may have been, the five sisters decide to claim their rights. Together, they go out of their tents without being called by anyone to the place where only the high-ranking men congregate, to the place of holiness and authority, to a place where women did not have authority, and these men must have been overwhelmed when they saw such a startling, unprecedented situation. It reminds me of two people, actually. It reminds me of, of the blind men who the disciples were saying, be quiet, he's not paying attention to you. And he kept going anyway. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Right? Sometimes faith is irrational to people. It looks foolish to people, but it doesn't look foolish to God. Because it was these blind men crying out to Jesus when everybody was telling them, oh, just be quiet, stop it, you're causing problems, leave him alone. He's not paying attention to you, but they kept crying out anyway. It was these men that Jesus eventually turned around and said, what do you want me to do for you? Let it be done according to your faith. Amen? How about the woman with the issue of blood? Doing something outside of the box, outside of culture, outside of custom, even outside of the prescriptions of the law. She was going to do whatever she could. She was going to be bold. She was going to be a, a, a forthcoming. She was going to get to Jesus no matter what. 
and, and in a way, that's what these girls, girls were doing. Everything was stacked against them. But they knew that they were in the right, and they were willing to, to, to do something different. I'm, I'm also, moving forward to today, I'm, I'm extremely, what's the right word? Um, it's not excited, it's not gladdened, but when I see mothers and fathers going to school boards and standing against the unlawful, uh, sometimes tyrannical um, ideologies that are being pressed upon our children without uh, any concerns for what parents want or desire and even uh, trying to keep parents away from how their children are going to be taught. And these bold men and women of God stand up and whether they're serving the Lord at that present time or not, I believe God gives them something and they stand up and they say, no. And when I see that, something inside of me leaps. And I say, that's faith. That's where we need to be as a people and as a church. We need to see when something's not right and we need to stand up and we need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't match up with what I believe God wants. And be willing to do something. There was a situation in New York many, many decades ago. Uh, there was, uh, in New York, they have these buildings and they have these alleyways because they have these high-rise buildings. And, and there was a woman being violated in, a, uh, in one of these alleyways and at that particular time, they, you know, the windows were open because they didn't have uh, indoor air conditioning, all that kind of stuff. So everybody's windows were open. They, everybody hurt. And nobody called the police. Nobody did anything. And they came and interviewed people. And I forgot, there was 80, 70, 80 people, something like that, if I remember correctly. And they said, why didn't you do something? Because I thought the next person was going to call. And I thought the next person was going to call. And I thought the next person was going to call. I'm sure there were people that said, I didn't want to get involved, and, you know, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, I think that the church needs to stop being the people that wait for the next one to call. We need to be the people by faith that say, I'm going to do something. I can do something. And God is with me. And he will help me because this can't keep going on. There's a phrase, I can't remember it right now, it says something like, when good people do nothing, I don't remember how it goes, but anyway, shouldn't have brought that up because I don't remember. So um, here they, they come forward and they speak to these people and they say, our father died in the wilderness, Numbers 27, three through four. He was not one of the faction, Korah's faction, which banded together, but died for his own sin, and he left no sons. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. So um, first, these women knew their law and history, and they used the fact that their father was not involved in Korah's rebellion as evidence to support his and their claim to the land. They also possessed the insight to recognize that while this omission in God's law, but because they consider God's law to be just, they just show, they show no hesitation in pointing out uh, their present situation with complete confidence. And God heard 
their request, and God said they're right. They need, something needs to be done in the midst of this. How does Moses react? He takes their case to God. He responds by clearly supporting their demand and even by declaring a new and permanent law to secure inheritance for any daughters in such circumstances in perpetuity. You never know. You think it might just be about you and your children, but God may use you to do something that will affect generation and generation after you in perpetuity because you decided to trust and believe God. It's my contention that these women would not have been of such mature godly character if there had not been a change in their parents. Now remember, they were born in the shadow of the fear. That was Zelophehad's name. That's all they knew was to live as a slave in Egypt. He had the opportunity to go into the promised land. What happened? They didn't take advantage of it. And he knew he was going to die in the wilderness, not completing his destiny in life, which was go, to go into the promised land. And I want to tell you something, that'll mess with you. Have you ever done something so bad that you thought, I'll never get over this? The consequences are too bad. They're too great. And even if God forgives me, which he does, I don't think I can forgive myself. I can imagine that Zelophehad probably felt like that. His parents felt like that. Maybe even they were part of the generation that says, no, no, Caleb and Joshua are wrong. Maybe they were there that day saying, we're not going in. And now wandering around the wilderness, they're living with that regret. Sometime over the course of their wanderings, I believe, and we'll see it here in a minute why I believe that, the attitudes of their parents changed and they began to hope again. And they began to believe. Because God, at the same time that he said, you're not going in, he said, your children are. And so somewhere in the midst of that, they began to believe God again and prepare the next generation for what they would begin to face. And I don't know how they taught them, but we can see in Zelophehad's daughters that somehow or another he trained them up because the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it their parents trained them up to believe in God to trust God to know God's will to keep God's will and to see the promises of God manifest in their life so something had to have changed in their faith I believe that we actually see the evolution of their walk over the years how this is where I, I did all this message just to get to this very short little thing, but it was so cool by how they named their children. They could have, uh, uh, first of all, well, let me say this. First of all, by having children. You know, there's a lot of people today, they have no belief in the future. They have no belief that anything's going to get better, and they just, they stop having kids. Right? You know, the plan of the evil one is to eliminate people. God's plan is to be fruitful and multiply. And even as a church, if we're not careful, we may look in the future and we say, everything's bad. Why well, wouldn't want to have children when everything's bad? Well, you know, you're looking at the wrong report. And you're looking with natural eyes. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and 
subdue it. I choose to be, believe that God is the victor, and in Christ, we don't lose, but we win. And I choose to believe in what God has said that he will do, and therefore, I don't live my life based on what the world is saying or what unbelief is saying. I choose to live my life based on what God is saying, and God is saying, be fruitful and multiply. All the promises of God are yes, and I've just got to come into agreement with them and say amen. So they had children because they believed there was going to be a future again. Second, I believe that we also see the evolution of their walk of faith through the naming of their daughters. In their names, from firstborn to last, we see a message that proclaims an ever-increasing hope in God and the promises of God for their lives and their future. Now remember, they're, they're, they're less than 40 years old, and more than likely, they're less than 25. So they, they've probably been in the wilderness 5, 10, 15 years before they ever had the first one, and then they had the second one and the third one. So the names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. So let's assume that they were named in the order of the, uh, that we were presented here, the, and, and, and they were given that order as in the order of their births. So what does Mala mean? Mala means pierced or disease. And I look at it this way. We got hit hard with our sin, and we're suffering terribly because of it. And they named their daughter Mala because that's where they were, and that's how they saw things. Well, the next daughter that was born was Noah, and Noah means lady wanderer. So here, they're kind of reflecting, I believe, their attitude. We are still, we are doomed to wander in this desert. Then the next one that was born was named Hogla. Hogla means to wobble. Wobbling means to go back and forth, to teeter between despair and hope. Somewhere we're, we're like, oh, you know, it's, it's pretty bad, but now we're starting to see a little bit of a hope in our lives, right? And then the next daughter that's born is called Milka. Milka means queen or counsel. Something has pushed us over to see the hope that God is providing us, and we recognize that in our daughter's birth, we recognize it in our daughter's birth now as we move towards faithfully, uh, as we move faithfully towards God's promise. So they're beginning to, in the, and what I want you to get you to see here is like, oh, we had a kid, but it's bad. So they named their kid. They weren't trying to doom their kid. They were just, that's their attitude. They, they were discouraged. It's kind of like, hey, man, uh, how are you doing? Not good, right? How's, how does life? Pretty gloomy. If you had a kid right now, what would you call them? Gloom. And that's what they did, right? And it is common. It's not uncommon for people to do that, right? So then they have the next kid, and man, I wish we had trees. All we have is a stupid desert. Snakes everywhere. You know, we're doomed to wander in this desert. God said we're going to die. We're going to die in this desert. Man, it's horrible. They named their daughter Noah, Lady Wanderer, right? Because she's doomed to wander with us. And then Hogla comes around. And all, somewhere in the middle of Noah and Hogla, they began to, something began to, awaken within them 
they're seeing all these people. Now they're seeing all these people die. But they're not all dying. It's the previous generation that's dying. But the new generation is still living and growing. And maybe something inside of them is saying, well, you know, God did say that the previous generation is going to die, but the new generation is not dying. If it was everybody dying, everybody would be dying, but the young people aren't dying. It's just the old people that are dying. Maybe if God said that these people were going to die, maybe the other part of his word that he says, but the next generation is going to come in is true as well. And they began to have hope, but they were wobbling. They were teeter-tottering, you know? And then Milka comes around, and something had pushed them over more to this side, and they began to see their future, and they said, oh, you're destined to be a queen. Now, before, all they saw was desert. All they saw was despair. But now they must be seeing promise because they, they have hope for that daughter. They have hope for what she's going to do. And it's reflected in the name and the way that they call her and what they call her and what they're hoping that will become in her life. You're going to rule and reign someday in the new land of promise. And the last one they name Tirzah. And Tirzah means delight or pleasantness. Somewhere, faith had once again taken over. And I, I just, this was over a period of, let's say that the youngest daughter is 15, you know. So over a period of 20, 20 years, 25 years, they had gone from complete despair and sorrow, and, but God didn't abandon them. I was thinking about this on the way here. Even in the midst of the desert where they were doomed to die, there was still a cloud covering them by day, and there was still a fire by night. Now, you know, when you don't feel good, you don't see all the good things that God is doing around you. Like I said before, we tend to gravitate on all the things that the enemy says we can't have instead of seeing and being grateful for the things that we do have. But somewhere down the road, they began to realize, you know, we're in this wilderness, we're doomed to die here, but that cloud is still there. The presence of God is still here. We still see Moses going out to the tent of meeting and the glory of God coming down. We still see Moses with a veil because the glory of God is so strong. We still see these things happening every day we wake up. We don't go to a bagel shop. We just go out there and we go into the desert and the dew comes and we get food. And every once in a while, quail rains down and we get meat. And, and Moses goes and he talks to a rock and we get water. And all of a sudden they began to realize, I didn't realize how awesome even though we're in the middle of this, God really is. And then they began to think about the good things that God is doing. And, and little by little, God is restoring their faith, restoring their faith, restoring their faith to such a way, to such a place where now they began to instill what they knew before into their children so that their daughters, they're not teaching them the ways of God, the truth of God, the promises of God. And so now when they're faced with a situation that is against the things of God, the daughters rise up and they say, we too have an inheritance in the things of God. So I don't know where you've been, I don't know what you've done in life. I don't know what kind of situations you've been through. But if God can do it for the parents, he can do it for you. 
And maybe you've been in that journey and you thought, man, I don't know how I could ever do that. But if God restored them and then all of a sudden they became, they became the foundation for the next generation, it doesn't matter what we did. It doesn't matter how bad things are. It doesn't matter how bad things were. We still have a future. And even if we can't physically do everything that we wanted, we can raise up another generation that can complete it. Because it doesn't live and die with us. God's promises extend from beginning to end. And they're not just for this generation. They're for the future generation. And I'm telling you, there is a future generation. And I'm telling you that the future is bright. I don't care what you see out there. The future is bright. Because God is good. And His promises are true. And if we will just believe God and walk in them, we will see change happen in our lives. We will see change happen in our city. And we will see change happen in our culture. Because God wants to. And He's looking for a people that will stand with Him to, to, to bring it into manifestation well how many do we have to have it only took one David to bring down Goliath it only take one Ruth it can only take maybe a couple Bobbies <laughs> one Mark one James one Paul one Lee. Just take out the key, Lee. Set yourself free. God is awesome. God is awesome. If He can change them, He can do something in us as well, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm.